Hello and welcome, everyone, to uh, another episode of They Might Be Mariners, uh, Lookout Landing's Prospects, Miners, uh, Focused Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, John Troopin. Uh, I'm joined today uh, by staff writer uh, Joe Doyle. Joe? Hello, hello. Uh, and we're very uh, excited uh, to also have a guest today. Uh, we have Carlos Colazo of Baseball America. Uh, Carlos, how are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. Indeed. So, uh, Carlos, obviously an expert on the draft, on minor league baseball, all sorts of things. Uh, and we're, we're going to dig into uh, just a variety of sort of strange things going with the with the draft and how really out of whack and unprecedented a lot of the things. Uh, Joe, do you want to kick us off here? Yeah, man, we're we're excited to have you, and we're excited to have uh, you know someone from Baseball America that you know spends twenty four seven on on the draft. And so, as a subject matter expert in the field, uh, let's just kick kick things off with what were your thoughts when you heard the draft was. Uh, you know, initially there were rumors that it was going to be canceled altogether, but when they settled on that five round, you know, possibly 10 round draft, you know, what were your, what were your impressions of that? Yeah. When they, when they announced they were having a draft in the first place, uh, my first uh, reaction was excitement. Obviously, like you mentioned, there were some rumors that the draft might not happen. Um, Pretty quickly. We, we realized that that seemed a little bit far-fetched. Most of the people that we talked to pretty regularly definitely anticipated a draft happening, obviously with, with the situation we're dealing with right now, you kind of have to go through all of your options. Uh, but first and foremost, I was just excited there were going to be a draft. There was going to be a draft. Um, kind of after that, you start thinking through some of the ramifications of a shorter draft. Obviously, this is going to push out a lot of the high school players, a lot of the, the college juniors, maybe even some of the seniors, depending on uh, what kind of situation they're at with their college, whether they'll get the financial support they need to kind of head back for another year. Um, yeah, but it's going to be a lot different. Um, it's interesting to kind of think through a draft. I mean, we're, we normally talk about a draft that's 40 rounds, obviously, and now um, we're going to look at something quite a bit different, whether that's five rounds, whether that's 10 rounds. Um, I'm just excited to see how it plays out, but obviously bummed for the amateur players who are uh, getting the short end of the stick in this one. Yeah, I mean, that's something that's been talked about quite a bit in, in our circles here uh, at Lookout Landing. We, you know, we definitely have a special place for some of these guys that are selected in, you know, not only after the fifth round, but the 10th round. And, you know, there's a lot of success stories that come out of the 20th round and beyond. But there is seemingly a growing sentiment among the industry uh, that maybe those rounds 25 through 40 are, are I don't want to say totally futile, but um, they're kind of organization builders, if you will. And a lot of them don't have the scouting reports or, um, you know, the track record to be maybe selected as potential big leaguers. So I know you've talked to some MLB scouts in the last couple of weeks that have kind of shared that similar sentiment to you. Where, where do you stand on it? And what kind of things have you heard about shortening the draft in general? Yeah, I've talked to scouts who are both ways. I think it depends on who you're talking to. There are some area scouts who really value uh, the back end because that's where they can kind of get some of those guys they believe in. Um, and, and obviously, there are always exceptions. There are always players who pop, who, who go in those later rounds. But mm -hmm. I think for me personally, when you just kind of look at the percentages and you look at where uh, Major League Baseball is going with their minor league uh, alignment and the draft next year is going to be a minimum of 20 rounds, I have always kind of thought that 40 rounds is too long. You look at the number of players who are even signed in that range. Most teams don't sign all 40 rounds. I think 20 to 25 rounds is appropriate. And I think especially when we're talking about um, realigning the minor leagues and getting rid of some of these lower level minor league teams, um, it just makes sense. Um, again, I think no matter what your cutoff is, there will always be some players who might have had a chance to make it uh, if there were a few more rounds or a few more picks. Uh, but at some point you have to draw the line and, and I do think that the 25 rounds gives you enough uh, of a pool to get the players that you want into professional baseball and I do think that a lot of this realignment we're talking about at the minor league level uh, is going to push some of those organization types out of baseball and while that's disappointing for them I think for minor league baseball as a whole and for prospects 
playing against good competition, I think it has a chance to be to be a good thing. I know that's probably a minority opinion uh, when you look at most people's thoughts on the minor league reconstruction, but uh, depending on how it goes, I think it could make minor league baseball as a whole a better product. Well, I think that's that that's the conversation in and of itself, right? Is 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 weighing the pros and cons of you know doing something like that, and and while you know removing some of these teams from small markets and you know the culture that they've built in those towns you do have to see both sides of the conversation to really get a full representation of what it would mean for baseball as a whole. So, John, um, where do you stand on, on minor league contraction? Where do you fall in this? It's it's definitely something that is uh, worrisome to me from, from a, like, baseball, uh, capital B baseball perspective because I think one of the, you know, exciting things just, you know, in a fan venue is you have these variety of quality and accessibility uh, levels for the product. You know, you can go see qual- reasonable quality baseball for a cheap cost if you're not living near, you know, an MLB town and removing access to that, you know, throughout the, you know, the Mountain West sort of region um, and and a lot of other areas, you know, that sucks. I mean, it, it just, it's a real, um, it would be really gutting, I think, for the game and for those communities. I do, at the same time, I, I think there is something to the developmental quality level. Not, not necessarily that like, oh, these facilities are so terrible now that we can't put people there, but like, the idea that you could send players, um, you know, fewer steps along the way and have players all, you know, have a lot of guys in one area where you have consistent instruction, um, you can kind of consistently monitor them. I, I get why, uh, I get the logic there. Um, I just worry that, you know, removing affiliation is going to not necessarily be supplementable by, oh, you put in indie ball then. Like that that's a really hard model to sustain mm-hmm. and and that that's a bummer, even though I get the logic behind it. Right. Um so let's shift a little bit towards this year's draft. It's gonna be an interesting one. There's you know potentially going to be five rounds. It could go up uh, maybe to ten. We'll see. There's a couple of things that I wanted to talk about specifically with how this shortened draft will affect a couple of teams. And the first one I wanted to talk about was the Houston Astros. And um, this is something you and I haven't had a great deal of opportunity to talk about. With, but with a team that's already been uh, sanctioned to lose their first two round picks, they've got a compensatory pick and rounds three through five, potentially, to make their picks. About two million bucks to spend over the course of four picks. Um Carlos, if you are someone in the Astros front office, that's obviously a huge handicap. But at the same time, if the draft is shortened, do you think that uh, ends up helping the Astros a little bit in the fact that, well, now everyone's not going to get that many picks, so the chances of hitting on a player are are worse for everyone? Or do you think it hurts them even more because their bonus pool is going to be so small that they're not going to be able to reach for you know a, a high-end high school talent type of thing when they eventually do hit the clock. Yeah, I, I think you maybe could argue that it hurts everyone, but I do think that it, it disproportionately affects the Astros. I mean, if you're looking at a five-round draft, they have four picks, I think, and then you've got, like you said, a little over $2 million in pool money. It just doesn't leave you a lot of options. And when you're missing out on the picks at the top of the draft, like if it's shortened, those picks at the top of the draft are even more important just because that, that's where the bulk of your value is probably going to come from. So when you don't have your first and your second round picks in a draft class that's very strong, one of the stronger draft classes we've had recently, oh, and you can't make it up by just drafting well at the back of the draft because there is no back of the draft, at least in the traditional sense. I think that's really, it's just a bad spot in general. You're losing out on a great draft class in terms of talent. And then next year's class has a chance to be even better with all these kids who are getting pushed to the JUCO level or getting another year of eligibility. So I, I think it's a bad situation if you're the Astros. Obviously, you, you always want more picks, so I think it's uh, it's pretty obvious to say it's it's not good for the Astros and for teams like the Yankees, who mm-hmm. just don't have a ton of picks. Um, yeah, it's, it's not great. And then another scenario um, that I wanted to bring up, Carter Stewart, a couple years ago, decided to not sign with, uh, I think it was the Braves, when he was selected like eighth overall. 
Uh, and he decided to go overseas and play in Japan and, you know, make six million bucks in the years that or eight million bucks, something along those lines in the years that he would have been controllable with uh, the Braves organization. So my question is, with there only being five rounds, there's going to be guys that are left out. There's going to be, uh, you know, junior draft eligible players, sophomore draft eligible players that could leave school and go play overseas right away. Um, with bonus pools being smaller, with the draft being smaller, could you see a, an instance where a wave of these draft eligible players say, you know what, I'd rather, you know, go make a bunch of money overseas and then come back after I turn 25 or, you know, is that going to become more of a reality? Yeah, it could. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you talk about MLB basically limiting where teams can spend and how much they can spend on amateur talent. Obviously, with everything that's going on in the economy, it, it makes sense that MLB teams don't want to spend on amateur talent. But at the same time, the draft in the international market is still the cheapest that you're ever going to get baseball talent. That, that's real value now. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what those other leagues, those those foreign leagues, whether that's Japan, whether that's another foreign league, are they in a situation because of the, it is a global pandemic? Are they in a situation where they also are spending less money? Um, I think a lot of people are kind of just assuming that oh, you can't get it in the draft. We'll just go to another country and play. I don't know the the financial situation of those leagues to to say whether or not they're hurting as much as MLB clubs at least are perceived to be hurting. Um, but I do think that that Carter Stewart showed that there is a viable path if you don't think the draft is right for you. Obviously, Carter Stewart was, we thought, a top 10 talent in the 2018 class. Uh, the Braves didn't like what they saw on his medical. Uh, and then he, he gave it a whirl in the JUCO level, kind of saw where his stock was for the next year and just decided, hey, this is going to be a better route for me. I think depending on how badly um, players want to just enter pro ball regardless, I think there is still an allure of being in an affiliated system. Uh, and I think there are, there are obvious reasons for that. Uh, it wouldn't shock me, I guess, if there were a number of players who decided that the Carter Stewart route was one that they could benefit from. Well, let's um, let's shift a little bit to this year's players because <clears throat> I want to I want to talk a little bit in terms of what's the situation here in Seattle. Uh, Seattle has a very interesting selection, being that they have the sixth pick in the draft and. Um, a lot of chat, a lot of uh, you know forums and things like that. A lot of experts have said that kind of six is where the draft might start this year because you've got a top five that a lot of people are assuming will go chalk in Spencer Torkelson, Asa Lacy, Emerson Hancock, Nick Gonzalez, and um, oh, who's the last one of that group? Austin Martin. Austin Martin. That's right. So Seattle's in an interesting an interesting spot at number six. I want to go over a couple of names that that might work uh, or might be of interest uh, to Seattle at number six, and, and kind of get your feel for what the industry thinks of them and what you think of them. So I think the first place to start would be Reed Detmers out of Louisville. Big big curveball. Doesn't have a ton of velocity. What do you think? I think Reed is one of the one of the more polished pitchers in this class. It's a very strong year for college pitching in general, and I think Reed entering the year, he was one of those guys who scouts looked at as maybe the best uh, control and command of any of the pitchers in this class, and what he did in his abbreviated 2020 season kind of backed that up. He's a guy who, like you said, he, he doesn't have the biggest velocity, a fastball that kind of tops out at 93-94 at this point, but he's got a huge hammer curveball that's an obviously plus pitch now. Good changeup. He's tinkered with a slider a little bit, but the curveball is his better breaking ball. I think if you want a pick that's going to give you a lot of safety, Reed Detmers is, is probably your guy. His upside is maybe like a number three type arm if everything goes well. Um, but I think I, I've talked to a number of different scouts who think he has kind of the one of the higher baselines, one of the higher floors of this entire draft class. And there's a lot of value in that, obviously, when you're dealing with something as uh, as unknown as, as amateur talent. Sure, with with a with a pick as high as number six, though, and you know you've got a lot of other other arms in the draft with with you know high velocity gasoline in their arms. Um, a name like Max Meyer comes up, so I think Max most would probably agree have a little has a little bit higher ceiling than Detmers might, but there's some question marks there. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're looking for the best pure stuff in the class, I mean, Max Myers is one of the first guys that you would talk about. I think Garrett Crochet is another guy, left-hander at Tennessee, but 
Max is a guy who has maybe the best amateur slider scouts have seen in recent years. I think there are a couple guys who you might uh, you might bring up and say, oh, this one is comparable, but we've had multiple scouts who said his slider is the best amateur slider they've ever scouted. You pair that with fastball velocity into the upper 90s, and while it was only a few starts this season, he showed he could hold that velocity throughout his outings uh, and across all four of those starts. So. I think he answers some questions about the starter reliever concerns you might have with him just because of his size uh, and the relative lack of track record. He's got he's got some starts under his belt at Minnesota, uh, but you look at a guy who's throwing that hard and is just six foot like he's listed at. There are some concerns there. How's he going to hold up in terms of durability, in terms of the stuff in a professional starting role? Um, but he does it with. Um, Without too much effort, uh, he's extremely athletic on the mound, uh, and he's a pretty good strike thrower as well. So I think you have a lot of, uh, of check marks that you can, you can go through with Max Meyer. And like you said, he does have pretty significant upside. I mean, two easy plus-plus pitches uh, and a solid changeup as well when he gets to start using that uh, more consistently. Okay, so a third name that I want to bring up is, is a little bit of a favorite amongst the community out here as who they'd like to see selected number six, and, and that's because of the hype train uh, and the comparisons that are being thrown around with, with Florida outfielder Zach Veen, uh, Prepster. What are your thoughts on Veen, and, and do you think the hype of Veen and some of the comparisons that he's drawn actually match the package? Yeah, I love Zach Veen. I think he's got <laughs> he's got one of the one of the prettiest swings I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, it's a very smooth, loose, handsy. He's got an excellent frame. He's like six foot four, six five, two hundred pounds. He added a ton of muscle over the off season. I mean, his swing is just geared for power. Uh, on top of that, he's got exceptional plate discipline. Um, I would say he's probably one of the better guys that I've seen in the last three or four years in terms of just approach at the plate. Uh, so those are a lot of things to like right off the bat. I do think there are some swing and miss concerns. Uh, I've seen him with a little bit more than you probably would want to see. Um, but I do think that he has just mechanically, um, his eye, his physicality, his raw power now, uh, I think he has tremendous upside. I mean, at this point, he's the top high school player on our board. Him and Austin Hendrick are kind of neck and neck, and they share some similarities. But I think just when you look at... you. When you want to dream on a guy, I think Zach Veen is a very easy player to dream on, uh, and it doesn't surprise me at all that so many people kind of paying attention to the draft have really latched onto him as a guy to like. Um, it's obviously tough to compare him to like a Christian Yelich or a Cody Bellinger, considering what those guys have done. I think mechanically, it's easy to make those comps uh, as far as like how that tool set will play out in three or four, four or five years uh, when he's potentially making his way to the major leagues. Uh, could be a little bit different from those guys, but I mean, again, he's very easy to dream on. He's one of my favorite bats in the class, personally. Just as a quick segue on the on the whole comp subject, where do you? Fall? I know you put out a little poll on on Twitter the other day. Where do you fall on comps? Are they constructive? Are they are they destructive? What do you think? Yeah, it was, I was. I thought it was a fascinating conversation, just because as we were kind of writing re these reports, we see a lot of comps that scouts put on players and. I personally don't like to throw comps on players. I think I think it just depends. Like if you're a scout or an evaluator or even even a fan who's been watching the game at kind of a an in-depth level for a long time, your your kind of personal catalog of players is is pretty vast and, and it'll be a little bit easier to throw those comps. Um, but I just feel like me personally, I haven't seen a lot of these guys. Uh, like if you compare Christian Yelich, like I didn't see Christian Yelich when he was in high school and he was an amateur player. Uh, so it's very tough for me to throw comps on these guys not knowing kind of where they came from all the time. So I think if you have put the work into making the comp, they can be useful. At the same time, every player is different. They all do it differently. They all have different mentalities. So I think it can be a bit disingenuous both sides to throw a comp on a player. So I think it gets dicey. Um, I also think people don't know that you can compare swings. You can compare bodies. You can compare mentalities. So... A comp can be all sorts of different things depending on, on what you're actually going for. So I just think uh, knowing what you're comparing, knowing who's comparing what player and what they're kind of trying to say in that comp, all that matters. In general, I would I think it's just safer to steer clear of them. Uh, but I do understand how that, they can be fun and obviously they can uh, kind of give you a quick idea of what a player is like if you're more casually into it or you just aren't super into like all the in-depth stuff and the scouting reports that we can provide.
Sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think the Yelich comp is it's a it's an easy comp to make with Zach Veen today because the leverage that he gets on the swing, it, he looks like Yelich now, but a lot of people don't realize that Christian Yelich, when he was drafted, was you know half the size that <laughs> Zach Veen is today, and yeah. he had a flat swing. I mean, he wasn't a home run hitter, so yeah, everyone ages and you know progresses differently. So, John, do you have a thought on um, just comps in general? Uh, yeah, I, I I think Carlos summed it up really nicely. I I find it very valuable to to have sort of a well constructed comp because it is a, a way of um, sort of translating. Uh, I think something that people have put a lot of time and a lot of um, sort of study on into something that might be a little bit more universally tangible. But the danger there is, you know like Carlos said, you know, you might make a comparison based on a variety of factors or only even a narrow fact, you know, sort of set of factors. Uh, and if people take that and say, you know, oh, okay, well, that means that this is exactly what they're, what they're going to be. You know, it's, it's, it's like the, uh, you know, a, a, a scientific study being done and then versus what the headline of an article about that scientific study uh, ends up being, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing where you have to be very careful. That's a great analogy. I like that. Yeah. Well, I've, uh, I've only got a few more questions for you here. Uh, you recently put out a question, uh, or I should say a podcast. Uh, if you haven't checked out baseball America's website, or you haven't subscribed, they're putting out the yeah. best content right now for minor league ball and, and the MLB draft. And with there not being tangible, actual baseball on diamonds right now, it's a great place to go get, uh, you know, your fix, if you will. Mm-hmm. But Carlos, you put out you put out an interesting podcast this week talking about some of the players that are hurt most by a shortened draft and and just a shortened a, a work stoppage in general. And a couple of those um, are two names that have been attached to Seattle in the past. And one I really want to focus on, and that's Mick Abel. He's a Pacific Northwest kid, big fastball, six foot five, but he did struggle last summer. Uh, talk to us a little bit about Mick, and do you think? he's just kind of missed his opportunity to get up to that number six spot with Seattle because of what's going on. Yeah, I think struggle might be a little bit strong. I think last summer maybe he was more inconsistent uh, in terms of stuff. He did, he did struggle at certain events. So just spe- like when you're talking about what specific events he might have struggled. But overall, I think he had a fine summer. Um, but he does have uh, some of the best upside in the class. I think right now we have him as the number two high school prospect, and we have him right outside of that top ten range. So just considering kind of the strength of the college guys at the top, those kind of elite players that are in the top 10 right now, I would think just based on the kind of risk associated with high school right-handers specifically um, and the 2020 draft cycle, how it's kind of all unfolded. I mean, Mick Abel didn't get to throw for his high school team a single time this spring. Scouts might've seen a bullpen or two. Um, So to make that guy your number six pick in the draft, I think, brings a, a ton of risk, even more so than it typically would. Uh, and Mick is a guy who, like you said, he's, he's a six foot five. I think we have him listed at 180. There's a good chance he is significantly heavier than that after putting on uh, some good weight over the offseason. He's a guy who could have changed dramatically over the offseason. The scouts just don't know uh, kind of what he is right now. So it's a lot of risk that you're putting. And I think kind of where he was at coming into this year, um, and the players ahead of him, I would imagine six would be a stretch. Uh, at the same time, if you're talking about a team who really liked him, saw him well over the summer, uh, and gets good information whenever teams are allowed to, to gather new video. I know uh, some of the scouting regulations were lifted a little bit, but I just think in general that's 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 a pretty big risk for six when you have some, some more serious, or not serious, some more uh, maybe safe picks who have just as much talent as Mick Abel ahead of him. Sure. And then the other one uh, was Garrett Crochet out of Tennessee. A lot of people prior to the season starting uh, had him possibly being an option for Seattle at number six. I know he had some some arm troubles early in the year and he was only able to get in maybe one start. But do you think he's still floating in that six to eight range or, or where, where does he fall? It wouldn't surprise me. It would, I would say it would surprise me less if Crochet jumped up into that range than Abel just because... You're looking at a guy who at least has some college track record. Uh, teams would have liked to get more starting track record this year. Uh, the arm was a concern, but he did show the same impressive stuff in a, in a brief three-inning debut before the season got shut down. But you're talking about a guy that has 
one of the better fastballs in the entire class from the left side, good big frame, uh, an easy plus slider when it's on. So I think that would make a little bit more sense. And, and he is a guy who definitely had a chance to jump into that top 10 range with a strong spring. Uh, without having that, it's a bit more of an unknown now. Um, but again, I talked about this when we talked about um, Max Meyer. I think he's a guy who potentially has some of the biggest pure upside in the class outside of like the top three or four guys. Sure. Okay, well, Carlos, I'm, I'm going to put you on the clock here with the last two questions. Um, we spoke a little earlier about Seattle being one of the more interesting uh, picks in the draft at number six with the top uh, top five possibly going as chalk. Um, let's, let's put the Mariners on the clock right now with the sixth overall pick in the draft. We've talked about some different names. If you're the if you're Jerry Depoto, who's the name you're calling if the draft is today? Oh, this is a good one. Okay, so if it's me, I'm just going to assume the top five guys are off the board that we've already mentioned. Um, so that would leave me personally in deciding between Garrett Mitchell, UCLA outfielder, I think maybe the toolsiest college player in the class, Reed Detmers, and probably Zach Veen, who we talked about. I think those are the three guys that I would be um, interested in. And I think at that point, I'd probably go with Garrett Mitchell. We haven't talked about him a ton, but I think he just has a lot of he has a lot of safety with his supplemental tools and just tremendous upside if he actually does uh, figure out how to hit for power. Uh, he's got plus plus raw power in the tank. He's an 80 grade runner, projects to be a plus or plus plus defender in center field. Um, elite bat to ball skills. Uh, he doesn't have the best track record of hitting. He's been a tinkerer like his entire his entire baseball career, going back to his high school days. He never really hit for any kind of power as a high schooler and really hasn't done it a ton in college. So I think if you're a team that has good player development, you can kind of figure out how to leverage his swing a little bit and harness that natural bat to ball ability. Um, I just love his upside. I mean, that kind of impact ability as a runner, as a power hitter, potentially as a center fielder, I think that combination of everything is just too much for me to pass up personally. He's a bit more polarizing than some of the players we've talked about, but uh, I'm, I'm buying in. All right, well, the Mariners do have the picks. They do have the bonus pool to spend, so certainly not out of the question. Carlos, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. You've been an excellent uh, an excellent guest, and uh, stay in touch here in the, in the next couple of months. We're loving the work that you're doing over there at BA. Mm-hmm. Well, John, uh, Carlos was obviously a, an excellent addition to the show. Uh, gave some, some really interesting names and interesting insight. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there anything that you could take away from from his information and his uh, his opinions? Certainly. I, so I, I think the, the Garrett Mitchell um, sort of possibility there, cause it was a really interesting one. And, and it's one that you and I talked about, and I, I think perhaps you and Carlos, and I know you've talked with folks about it as well. Um, you, you actually changed my mind a little, or changed my perspective at least a little bit on Mitchell. Because uh, he's been someone who you know, I don't, I don't love his swing. I I don't, lo- you know, I think I it it looks a little um, sort of uh, herky jerky um, and uncomfortable at the plate. He is incredible. You know, he's got the strength, he's got the speed, and the he's been you know a, a strong hitter. But obviously, the home run numbers haven't quite been there uh, in college and. Uh, it's it's very much I think a, a it's difficult for me um, to not look at what the Mariners have as an opportunity right now. Picking high in the draft this year, probably picking high in the draft next year, depending on how that works out. Mm-hmm. Um, and not yeah, that'll say, be interesting to follow. Right? Yeah, I mean that, that's a, that's a whole other animal. But <laughs> with sixteen losses, the Mariners pick. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and and just. And think like the Mariners have not really had a, an opportunity to go for the high level, like sky high ceiling kind of talent like Zach Veen, um, you know, in a while because they've been picking sort of the middle of the draft. Um, you know, obviously Kyle Lewis they got in in the teens of the draft, but even that was you know eleventh overall if I'm not mistaken. Um, but you 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 sort of put the point that like. Evan White was a guy kind of like Garrett Mitchell in the sense of like everyone could see the athleticism was there, you know, the all those supplemental tools like Carlos said are going to be enough to carry him, 
you know, defensively carry him, you know, to be a good base runner. Um, so if he is in fact able to harness the power and the, you know, exit velo into a more efficient swing, suddenly you have, you know, all the, you have a full package there. Um, and, and you're, you're, you're looking at someone who's very exciting as a prospect. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, there, there are a lot of really promising possibilities for the Seattle there. And I do, I, I, I am, I am encouraged, uh, by the, the way that the draft sort of, uh, lines up with what Seattle needs in a way last year's draft arguably didn't, uh, you know, obviously Seattle went very heavy on pitching last year, which was not reputationally what that draft was going to be particularly strong on. I think they got some good guys out of it, but that was, you know, there, it remains to be seen. Um, and, and this year, I think if, if they're able to, in fact, get five rounds, hopefully 10 rounds out of it, um, you know, they could really stock their system pretty nicely. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, when the draft is this deep, and mm-hmm. this talented, uh, if you're Jerry Depoto, you have to take the best player on the board. And mm-hmm. as much as I love Reed Detmer's curveball, I mean, mm-hmm. you could. It it sounds like a lot of fun to watch mm-hmm. that curveball in person for mm-hmm. six years. I mean, that sounds like a lot of fun. But at yeah. the same time, like Carlos said, if he if he is a mid rotation ceiling, but also from the sounds of it, a mid-rotation floor. You know, like you've got a number three. Right. As much your, as a pitcher, you know, as, as much, much as a, a pitcher can be. Yeah, right. It's it's really hard when the draft is this deep and this talented to not take the biggest ceiling. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, the last time Seattle, I, I think, you know, again, Lewis was like, oh, my God, Kyle Lewis fell to them. Mm-hmm. Of course you take Kyle Lewis. But, like, you know, they didn't have a first-round pick the year before that. 2014, the last time they picked in the top 10, they took a high school outfielder who had probably the best offensive ceiling by many scouts in the draft in Alex Jackson, and it didn't work out. But that doesn't mean that type of pick is bad. You know that there. You know it. Right. It, it it made sense to go for this incredibly talented offensive player who was maybe a catcher at the very least you could put him in the outfield and had the, you know, had reasonable athleticism, had a really strong arm. So, you know, I, it, it, it's still, I think, um, a sound strategy to go for that sort of high upside play that the Mariners really haven't gone for in the last, you know, in the last several years. Yeah. I mean, Listen, Alex Jackson didn't work out, but if you go back, it, I'm just going to go back five years because that's how long it should take a high school player to work his way up the ranks. If you go and you look at the highest outfielder taken uh, from the high school ranks. Oh, this start, is a very fun thing to do. It's just going it, back for a ways. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So Alex Jackson, unfortunately, was uh, 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. You got Kyle Schwarber. I mean, that was a that's a resounding success. Mm-hmm. You go back to 2013. You've got Clint Frazier, who, while he hasn't panned out yet, he has shown he just he's just blocked mm-hmm. for one mm-hmm. is one way to say it. I mean, he's got the tools. He just needs an opportunity. Mm-hmm. The year before that, the highest prep outfielder is Byron Buxton. The year before that. Not as good. You got Bubba Starling, but he finally made his uh, introduction last year. And then, uh, let's see, we'll go one more. The year before that, you got uh, Delino DeShields Jr. So, you know, they've all made their big league debuts. Um, They haven't been the stars that some were, you know, tabbing them to be. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, in my opinion, Zach Veen is in that stratosphere of Byron Buxton when he was taken in, in terms of talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when Clint Frazier and Austin Meadows were taken, they were both considered pretty safe bets to be big, you know, big time players. And they've both turned into that. So I think that's what Zach Veen could be. I think he could be an impact bat um, just to play devil's advocate, just because I, I have talked to scouts about this draft and, and what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Garrett Mitchell is maybe the most split uh, player that 
I've talked to people people about. So mm-hmm. I think I've talked to three or four people, and there are some that believe he's going to be a superstar and he's going to tap into 25 home run power. And then there are others, and the exact quote is that I got is, you just don't draft Adam Angle with the sixth pick in the draft. <laughs> yeah, Which was I mean, startling to me yeah. because you don't. You definitely mm-hmm. don't. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. Seattle's in a... They're in a tough spot because you really touch every different angle mm-hmm. of the way you can approach a draft with this sixth pick. Yeah. I, I think so. even to, to sort of cheat one one year further forward, um, I think that number the number five overall pick in 2015 was, you know, another high school outfielder that I think, you know, in, in that comp talk, which I think is a very interesting one of like, you know, we usually do comps to – big leaguers right we do do comps to people that are recognizable that um but that's not what guys look like when they're going to be drafted like you get stronger you get bigger you get you know more refined you learn a lot as you as you go you know like you you know christian yelich is not remotely close to the same player so um but i do think they're you know if you watch like Kyle Tucker video, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's that, you know, Kyle Tucker, who still is kind of skinny as a rail, still has that kind of hilarious. Ted Williams, thing. baby. <laughs> exactly. Teddy ball game. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that's, you know, obviously Tucker has had sort of up and down performance in the bigs, but he's kind of been blocked, like, you know, yeah. not as badly as Frazier, but. But he's but, he's not gotten a full take no. and go. But he's yeah. been, I mean, you you can go back 10, 15, 20 years. I would, he's had maybe the most prodigious minor league career yeah. of an of a minor league outfielder that I can remember. Yeah, it's like him and George Springer, and yeah. hey, both you know kind of the same. Like th- like hitting yeah. three forty everywhere at every level, thirty five mm. home runs everywhere every year every level, thirty yeah. stolen bases. Every year, every mm-hmm. level. It's like you yeah. watch Jared Kelnick, yeah. and Jared Kelnick's like, you know, 290, 20 home runs, 21 stolen mm-hmm. bases. Add 10 to every field. Yeah. Yeah. And that's Kyle Tucker. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's a special talent. And um, that's the type of frame that you're acquiring if, if you go with mm-hmm. Zach Veen. So, mm-hmm. it'll, be, uh, it'll be awfully interesting. Uh, another thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about was, um, you know, Carlos. Uh, he talked a bit about, uh, where is it, Max Meyer. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say Seattle doesn't go the, the Zach Veen route or, or the Garrett Mitchell route. They go pitcher. And you draft a guy that's got a little bit of, he's got a little bit of, of durability concerns because he's six feet tall, he's 180 mm. pounds, but he throws the ball 100 miles an hour and he's got, you know, an insane slider. Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable going after a player like that this early in the draft with the ceiling that he's got? I mean, those type of arms don't don't last in general. Um, I mean, I honestly, I am like the the skill set that the Mariners have uh, shown they've been able to develop is guys who. You know, many of the successes they've had are somewhat undersized guys who are willing to adjust and maximize, you know, the skills they have. That's been a lot of guys who have fringy stuff. You know, your LJ Newsom's, Darren McCackins, you know, Devin Sweets and and Sam Delaplanes. Like, it, you know, it's guys who are making themselves into something where they could have previously been nothing. So I think. If they're able to have that success and showcase, you know, point to high-profile guys and say, look, we, we know what we're doing. Look at these guys we've shown. What they can do, hopefully, once they have guys who are already something, uh, you know, and, and sort of transform that forward is, I, I think, is very exciting. Um, and I think makes me less worried about size necessarily. Um and you know Seattle. I'm not. I wouldn't say Seattle is necessarily uh, particularly 
good at avoiding injuries. I think that's kind of a, you know, there you can do some things well, but honestly, a lot of that is good fortune. Um, but certainly they have shown no aversion to getting smaller guys thus far. You know, Justice Sheffield, Marco Gonzalez, like these are not tall, you know, th- these are not picturesque starting pitchers necessarily. Um, and they're still, you know, being quite successful uh, with with players like that. So Meyer, who has a absolutely like just gorgeous uh, couple of pitches in the fastball and the slider. I mean, that is already exciting enough. So if they can find a way like they have with a with you know, guys like Kirby and um, and Logan Gilbert, who are obviously huge to say, okay, we're going to have you take, you know, five, 10% off, and we're going to have you repeat your motion, you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit more consistently, and you're going to be, you know, 95 to 96 and still have that, you know, slide. I mean, that is... That that's really encouraging, and and the type of thing that I would, be, I would feel comfortable with this player development group working with. Yeah, I mean, there is there's a track record for guys that are this size and mm. they're this athletic. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm not drawing any comparisons, but you know, there's guys like Marcus Stroman that are five eight, right. and they came up throwing gas, yeah. and yeah. Um, Tim Lincecum from UW. I mean, he was. I don't even think he was six feet, and I definitely know he wasn't 185. Maybe yeah. getting out of the shower. Yeah, uh, he was yeah. throwing, you know, 98. And then uh, the the Royals, the Royals' late starting pitcher, Jordan uh, Ventura. Yeah, I was gonna say Jordan Alvarez. That's not right, Ventura. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's a there's a track record of this sort of player working, especially if they're athletic. And mm-hmm. Meyer is an athletic. Uh, guy that gets down playing really really well he's got good mechanics like yeah, carlos it, said it's it's free and easy it is it is it's actually just like if you want to watch like hey this is what you kind of want to emulate as a pitcher like you just watch like some max meyer video like he gets down the hill really nicely like the weight transfer is spectacular and like he's he's coming just with nice, just a nice, easy release, like every time. I mean, you know, you you never know with pitchers. Like tin stop is a thing for a reason. Mm-hmm. But um, yep. I I would not be I would not be scared off of him, um, especially if the Mariners, you know, have the chance to sort of get some degree of medical information on him and think, okay, there's no baseline risk here you know more than any any other pitcher then yeah i think i think he's very worth worth the worth the look there so having talked it out a little bit you got meyer you got veen you got detmers you got mitchell um i'll tell you what it's not a bad position to be in because no. seattle could seattle could walk away with any one of those four players mm-hmm. uh and feel pretty darn good but is there a guy there that sticks out for you i know carlos had had Garrett Mitchell. Yeah. Um, I, I feel, I, I think you, you've encapsulated it more or less perfectly. Like I, I don't, it would be difficult for me to be supremely disappointed in, in any of the guys that I, you know, I think are being bandied about there. Um, mm-hmm. Mitchell, obviously I haven't seen it quite from him, the, the, the play, but I think the, the reason he is there is because he's shown some good thing he's shown you know plenty of good things and you know there's more in there uh if he if he's you know coached properly and if he you know is is continues to to grow uh i will say i i couldn't pass up on zach being there uh like it you know <laughs> it, it it's it is difficult to uh I think that the Mariners are not like a, you know, they're not the Marlins. They're not the Rays. Like, they're not a team where it's like, okay, we have to line up all our ARB and pre-ARB guys and hope that they go, you know, hope that everything goes right before and that they become stars before they, uh, you know, before they leave in free agency. Like, the Mariners have plenty of money and they're not like, you don't, they're not completely unappealing to free agents. 
Well, and, but, and, and I think that's another thing that needs to be pointed out about this draft that it's five rounds and a lot of teams do not have the luxury of having seven picks. Mm-hmm. The Mariners have right. money. And if mm-hmm. they if they go with Veen in the first round mm-hmm. and they've got to pay him, mm-hmm. then great. But yeah. if they don't go with Veen in the first round and they go with a college player that signs mm-hmm. four slot, mm-hmm. they're going to be in a very unique position at 43 right. to select a player that... I mean, wholeheartedly, half of the league will not have access to the types of players. They, they just yeah. won't be able to sign yeah. the types of players that Seattle might be able to sign at 43. So yeah. I don't know how far you've uh, dug down on you know, this draft class or, or if you have any opinions on the matter, but is there a name uh, that sticks out for you at 43 or maybe a philosophy that you'd like to see the team follow in the second pick? Um, they've sort of been going with uh, you know kind of a policy of well, not a policy, but but they've definitely been going. I think with like a straight, sort of a straighter, straighter laced, surefire signability kind of pick. You know, even if it is obviously someone who has a first round talent, like you know Gilbert was a first round talent. You know, Kirby, Evan White, like these these are first round talents. But like then going with sort of a, a more upsidey play uh, in the second round, um, or or at least a more in, intriguing play. I would love to see them go for a catcher um, mm. in the in the top couple picks there. Um, I think that there's not a ton of catching depth in in the system right now, and it's hard to you know. Obviously, you you kind of just go for you know the best player on your board at that point, but there's I I am wary of the fact that it's. It's Cal Raleigh and, uh, or Cal Raleigh. Sorry, I'm d- I've done it again. Uh, Cal Raleigh and you know a lot of question marks beyond that uh, in, in in Seattle's uh, catching depth. You know, there's there's some interesting uh, guys with tools, but I I would like to see, um, you know, someone who I think has a good shot at making the, I, I think this this would be a good time to flip the flip that script I suppose where you can go for that high upside guy if you if they go veen like then you go for you know a, a, a more um, consistent like okay this is someone who we think has the defensive skill set maybe the bat to make the bigs and that uh, you know that I think would be uh, very valuable for this system I think uh, with a with a college class as deep as this one as far as arms go if they do go veen in the first round i would be surprised if they didn't go uh with a college arm Mm -hmm. in the at at 43 and just because you know you have a chance to land a high floor arm there's a lot there's i mean bryce Mm -hmm. jarvis out of duke would be an excellent option slade Mm -hmm. chaconi out of miami would be a great option uh you know Cade cavalli out of oklahoma there there are a ton of names that'll be possibly available in that range that I think Seattle would go for. But, um, yeah, I like the prep catcher route. I think Kevin Parada that uh, Carlos was talking about, mm-hmm. he would be an excellent addition to the to the organization. He's probably going to move pretty fast because of his bat. I know uh, in having previous conversations that he's going to be expensive. He, mm-hmm. He's going to cost first-round money to get him mm-hmm. out of Georgia Tech. But that's the sort of thing that you do in this draft. If you've got the money and you're one of the few teams that has the money to land someone like Kevin Parada mm-hmm. or a Tyler Soderstrom and another bat-first prep catcher, uh, you have to do it because this is your opportunity to do it. Yeah. Um, just a couple other names I want to hit on just because there are a couple of names that I'd like to see the team go after. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Nick Lofton, the shortstop out of Baylor, would be a really nice addition. He's a He's an average to an above-average defensive shortstop that's always hit well, but he's never really tapped into the power. Uh, he dropped his hands this year out of nowhere. Nobody knew it was coming, mm-hmm. a lot like what Evan White did. And he hit a ball at Midden Maid Park so far over the train tracks that in, in, a, in a game that um, it, it caught people's attention. It was the exit velo was like 112. I mean, it was. I know it's a metal bat, but that's that's out of this yeah, world power. Absolutely. And I think he went on to hit. I could be totally wrong on this, but I think he went and hit like eight home runs this year in the short sample size. So 
Uh, he's gone way up for me. And then, um, yeah, I mean, uh, Carlos, Kevin Sabato would be a great one. Um, maybe Gage Workman, the third baseman shortstop out of Arizona State, would be another good one. So, uh, yeah, it should be it should be a fun draft. I think the fact that it's only five rounds might make it a little bit more um, appealing, like watchable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to be shorter. Yeah. You don't have to dedicate Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday to it. I'm sure it's going to be done in, you know, um, if not one day, just, you know. Yeah, I have to imagine that. it's one day. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's going to go be, quick. Yeah. So. Well, hey, man, I don't have too much to add. This has been another fun podcast. Uh, really enjoying They Might Be Mariners. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, do you have anything to add? No, uh, I, I think it's uh, it, it's a very weird time to to try and do all of this you know obviously because you know talking about the future of baseball when the the present of baseball so in flux but um hopefully hopefully you guys are enjoying it listening uh certainly it it helps us uh sort of stay sharp and and keep our minds in the game um and uh we're gonna we're gonna try and talk to some more uh sort of prospect and draft experts uh in the in the coming weeks here uh which i think you guys are gonna have i think you guys are gonna enjoy so um thank you thank you joe for uh for taking the lead on this um and uh and bringing carlos on here yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, looking forward to doing a couple more of these here over the next few weeks and uh, continuing to keep baseball alive. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, uh, until then, um, stay safe, stay healthy. 